This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Joshua Ferris, the best-selling author of three novels, Then We Came to the End, The Unnamed, and To Rise Again at a Decent Hour. He was a finalist for the National Book Award, winner of the Barnes & Noble Discover Award and the Penn Hemingway Award, and was named one of the New Yorker's 20 under 40 writers in 2010. His current novel, To Rise Again at a Decent Hour, is shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. The novel is about Paul O'Rourke, a dentist who refuses to have a website and spurns social media. Then, a website for his business pops up out of nowhere, and someone uses his name to send oddly religious tweets. As his identity is challenged, Paul is searching to clear his name and navigate the differences between the virtual and real worlds. We began the interview discussing why Ferris chose a dentist as his main character. Well, I guess I could answer that one of a couple ways. Um... There, you know, there was kind of like the the initial impulse, which was to say, well, a dentist would be an interesting character. I thought, you know, I mean, when I go into the dentist, I I kind of look around and I see all of these really pretty frightful, but also interesting instruments and tools and uh, machines and things that uh, I had no idea really what they were all for. And so I, I I started thinking that a dentist must do a lot during the day and uh, I would like to know what some of those things are. So before I even really had the character, I was interested in a kind of, you know, theoretical way about how a man or a woman who has dedicated him or herself to this profession, what, what, that, what that person does. So I became interested in that way. And then in a more kind of thematic way, there's the myth, and, you know, I don't know if this has any uh, basis in reality, but there is the myth that the dentist is sort of the one of the saddest of the professions, you know, uh, the professional who is uh, most likely to commit suicide and uh, kind of always in despair. And so that kind of appealed to me because of, uh, because of the nature of the book that I knew I wanted to write, which was basically about a kind of um, religious or spiritual despair. And so it kind of fit. Despite this myth of suicide and, and depression, I've met a lot of dentists, or the dentists that I've had, most of them have been very cheery people, very interested people, very curious people, and uh, they don't they don't strike me as being brought down by what they do on a daily basis. The you know rather unpleasant stuff that that you can confront. I mean, you don't have much control over the person that comes through your door, and that person could have neglected his or her mouth for eons and. Uh, you're kind of left holding the bag if if you're the dentist, and yet they don't. You know these these people that I'm thinking of, they don't they don't mind that. They they think of it as a challenge. Does everyone tell you their dentist stories now? Yeah, they do. But you know, I I found that, and this is another reason that I was kind of drawn to the to the dentist in the first place, that once people start talking about their dentist, they can't stop. And that everybody has a dentist story, and everybody usually has like a good dentist story and a bad dentist story. They're everywhere, and 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 they want to. They want people want to talk about them. They, they, this is a very exciting thing for people to. Even though I don't think that most people think about it much, once they start talking about their dentist, they really get going. You said that the book you wanted to write before you even found the dentist 
was a book about a spiritual or, or religious struggle. What drew you to that theme? Well, there was, there's always this idea that if you don't do this or that on earth, then, you know, when you die, you go to hell. You know, that's kind of a fairly prevalent notion in a lot of religions, certainly in the religion that I was raised in, in the Christian religion. But I thought that there was another kind of, there was another kind of hell that I could imagine people feeling as if they were actually partaking of on earth, which was namely the desire to believe and the desire to be a part of a community of believers, and yet in a real either intellectual or emotional uh, or spiritual inability to believe, uh, to embrace the religion that would guarantee immortality after physical death. And at that point, it seemed to me like a a living hell on earth. If you you know if you if you were alienated in a way that was that was determined by your principles or anything else for that matter, and yet you recognize fully the advantages of belief and the comforts and community that come with such a thing, you would be kicked out. Uh, you would be part of the past over. And it was that dilemma that I wanted to write about. When you have such lofty ideas and philosophical ideas, how do you then translate it into a novel and make sure that you're not editorializing? A lot of fits and starts, a lot of mistakes, a lot of uh, writing in, in dark directions and wrong directions. And You know, I mean, for me, it always really starts with, with a voice. Th- I mean, things really get cooking once I have the voice. So for a long time, it had absolutely nothing to do with these loftier things. It had to do with finding the thing that makes a book a novel and not, as you say, an, editor- an editorial piece or something theological or something really, you know, not fiction. So, you know, I leave off the um, ideas that are supposed to be infiltrating this thing and just concentrate on what I do as a fiction writer, which is, you know, uh, make sentences, make sentences that work, that are somehow compelling to me, that that, uh, I don't feel the next day after reviewing the previous day's work that I want to get rid of them, you know. Uh, And they're not just sentences, but snatches of dialogue, uh, bits of character development, anything that can stick um, in a way that, that has nothing to do with these other intentions that, that, that work as, as, as fiction. And at that point, um, I can start to fold these more thematic elements in bit by bit. You know, it's a process, and a lot of times it's not working. But somehow, the year teaches much what the day doesn't know. You know, and a year later, things are working in a way that they didn't in the first couple of days. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Joshua Ferris, author of the novel To Rise Again at a Decent Hour. In To Rise Again at a Decent Hour, you have a line about the main character, Paul O'Rourke, that says he's suffering from terminal hopelessness. He has a few things he's passionate about, including the Red Sox, but he's lost many romantic loves in his life, and his father committed suicide, and he's depressed. Then his online identity is stolen by someone who is tweeting Bible-like sentences, and this all brings up the question of identity. So I'm wondering what you were thinking about in terms of identity as we think about who we are and then who we put out in the world. 
Yeah, I was thinking uh, really uh, about what it meant in America. You know, this is a guy who believes that he knows who he is. He's Paul O'Rourke. He's, uh, you know, very likely some Irish fellow who is now a dentist and a you know, kind of a self-made man in some sense because he comes from a poor family. But he he doesn't know himself. So, you know, as you point out, he is he is lost. He's completely lost. And that lostness results in this downtroddenness, this despair, this feeling of terminal hopelessness. But in part, it's also because he believes he knows who he is. He's got strong opinions about the internet, about the Red Sox, about God. But it's not until his identity is stolen that he kind of realizes, and I think, you know, the reader realizes, hopefully, you know, that he he doesn't know who he is. And the process of having his identity stolen is really a process of self-discovery. He can tell you all he wants in those early pages of the book that he knows who he is, and he can give you a strong sense of a firm personality, somebody whose opinions are set in stone. But gradually, I think that's chipped away because you recognize that he doesn't know from who he, from whom he comes. He doesn't know his place in the world. Uh, you see him ask, acting desperately amongst his girlfriend's families for some kind of some kind of sense of belonging. So the the theft of the identity, I think, I thought I think of it as ironic because he really doesn't have an identity at the start of the book it's only when his life is peeled back and you recognize that there's not a whole lot of there there that he starts to build upon what he learns about himself uh, in the course of the book one of the things that i'm interested in also is just your relationship to technology and Obviously, there's a lot in the book. Paul's main identity is basically stolen through technology. It's email and websites and Twitter. And at one point, he just turns off the Internet at work so he doesn't have to see any of that. And I thought this was an interesting moment because it sort of made the reality of his identity theft just disappear. And it made me think about what is real in your identity and and if something's plaguing you emotionally in your real life you can't just turn someone off but he could just turn off the internet yeah well you know we have two worlds now we have kind of like two realities one of them is uh is online and one of them isn't and before the internet came into being uh we just had the one and now i think it's all a matter of how much you engage how much you care to engage um, people do care a great deal because not only are they contributing, but they're also asking the EU to demand that Google erase some of those results that bring uh, an unflattering light to them. So it's a it's a it's a problem. It's an interesting problem. It's a great conflict, um, and so much of now so much commerce and certainly time and uh, effort is goes into um, cr- you know creating and curating the Internet and your own identity on there. So if you do engage, it's uh, an extraordinarily important part of life. It's become an extraordinarily important part of life rapidly. If you don't engage, if you ignore it, if you don't check your email, if you don't have a Facebook or Twitter page, if you don't have an online presence, if you have no reason to or desire to be a part of it, it doesn't exist. 
I mean, we think of we think of like old people this way, right? People that were simply too old to sort of understand what the big fuss was, or or to become interested, or whatever. Like they simply don't exist on the internet. They don't they don't have an online identity, and that's kind of weird to us uh, as a part of this generation or a younger generation to think of somebody opting out from such a vital thing, from such an interesting thing. But basically, that's what they've done. They've just opted out. And that's what Paul's doing when he's like, I can't take it anymore. I'm shutting this out. I'm shutting this off. I'm shutting this down, and I'm out. Um, and it kind of works. But the problem is he himself is a little too addicted. Um, he likes what's going on too much, uh, which is another contradiction of his character, right? He says he's a Luddite. He says he doesn't, doesn't want to engage, but in fact he wants to engage as much as anyone else. And how about you? I tend to be more indifferent. I do like it a great deal. I think it's fascinating, and I you know, wrote the book about it because I'm drawn to it. But I don't do Twitter or Facebook. It's not really a... I don't have an animus against these things. Uh, it's more of an indifference. I suspect that sometime in the future, I probably will have these things and probably will do them. But right now, I'm you know, focused on other things. I'm focused on reading and writing books and, and raising a family and all these other things. So... I I have sort of resisted, and, and the part part of it is simply I share uh, Paul O'Rourke's obsession with things. So I I feel like once I kind of commit to a larger presence online, I, I'll get sucked in and never write another book. In your book, you you got this chance to sort of write like a Bible. It it they weren't quotes from the Bible, but they were sort of in this sort of language and tone, some of the passages of the Bible. And I'm wondering if that was a fun experience to be like a God in the sense that you got to write these truths. Yeah, for sure it was fun. It was also real pain in the butt because, you know, you got to really get that stuff right. And also to fold it in in a way that was palatable as an as an as a part of a novel. It couldn't just kind of be, you know, unreconstructed biblical passages, uh, which at one point it was, because as I was trying to figure out how to make this this blend between the theology and the and the the novel, um, you know, I I hadn't worked it out, so I needed to kind of cut it up. I needed to make it more voice driven within the book um, and not, and less biblical sounding. So I I really had to kind of, kind of like negotiate these two rhetorics. The, I mean, it's a, it's a guy telling you this story. He's just simply narrating his story. And when this biblical voice comes along, it overtakes the story. So I had to blend those two. So it was difficult, but it was a lot of fun. You know, I mean, I, I read a lot of biblical passages. I got the cadences down. I got some of the, the right diction down. And then I just kind of adapted it to this particular, um, you know, doubting religion and uh, could, you know, write my own scripture. That was a, that was a good time. And was that separate from the narrative? I mean, did you spend days just doing that, or did you do them all in the same day, sort of as they appear in the book? No, they, they kind of worked uh, differently even than that. They, at first, as I say, it was like I was just writing Scripture, right? I, I just I took, it, took it up in the way that I understand Joseph Smith sort of took it up, right? It was just kind of like unfiltered, old-sounding stuff that told a new story. But that didn't work in a novel because it really did come off as kind of like an excerpt from the Bible, and this is told in a very spe- this is told from a very specific point of view, from Paul O'Rourke's point of view. So uh, you know, I didn't think that he would just sort of allow 
these raw passages to appear in his in his narrative. So I needed to kind of come at it the way that he would come at it, which was, you know, sort of skeptically and wryly, ironically. Uh, so some of that infiltrates the passages now, so that you get a real sense that this that though this is telling a biblical or a Bible-like story, you're getting it from one person's point of view. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Joshua Ferris, author of the novel To Rise Again at a Decent Hour. Tell me about your interest in the workplace. This novel and your first novel both take place within the realm of the character's work life. Uh, I think it really, it brings people together, first of all. It brings characters together. And based upon their responses to the group that they're joining or uh, that they're a part of, you really get a sense of who they are. You know, to what extent do they resist the group? To what extent do they embrace the group? To what extent do they define themselves against or a part of the group? All of these things are like a very, they're a very interesting metric for me in life to understand how a person defines him or herself, you know, how strongly uh, individual and individualistic is a person, and to what extent do they, are they community-driven, are they uh, communally-minded. These are just kind of interesting things for me, and they really happen dynamically at the workplace. There's also just kind of the, the, the novelist's uh, need to get people to do things. Setting this book in a dental office uh, gave me a lot of narrative possibilities because I could have people, strangers, show up with problems in their mouths and have my dentist work on them and, and reflect as he's working on them on, you know, not just rot and decay, but the larger things, the meaning of life, and also, you know, why it is that his dental, his dental assistant who's st- sitting across from him all the time doesn't seem to want to talk to him, uh, why his dental hygienist bugs him or uh, amuses him throughout the day. All of these things just sort of give me more more content to deal with in the book. And what about humor in your books? You know, you have so much humor, and that humor can be sometimes so subjective and, and so personal. How do you balance that out, and does that, do you work hard to get that, or is that just sort of who you are? Uh, well, I work hard enough at it. You know, I, I would love to say that it all comes naturally, but as maybe your listeners would know, since they haven't been belly laughing throughout the hour, it takes a little effort. It's I go into a kind of different mode when I'm writing. I, I mean, I think about what's funny when I'm writing. And when I'm just kind of a person in the world, I'm much more, I suppose, reserved or something, where I'm kind of trying to figure things out. Maybe, maybe the word is slow. I'm, slow. I'm a slow person. So, uh, you know, and to be really funny, you kind of have to be quick and, and quick-witted. Um, I'm kind of, you know, trepidatious a little bit. I want to figure out what the situation is, what we're, who's here, uh, do they mean me any harm? You know, I'm kind of uh, circumspect about the world a little bit more than, than I am when I sit down to write. And, and it, when I sit down to write, I just go into a different place where I'm, I'm actually looking for what's funny. I think it's, a, it's an important part of fiction. And certainly why I've gone to fiction repeatedly is to laugh. And, and so I, I try to write in that direction. And what about celebrity? You mentioned that a lot in the book. Paul talks about the people from Friends and what he sees on People magazine. And that comes in 
and out throughout. I think there's another sense in which, um, much like the Red Sox for Paul, celebrity magazines kind of represent a kind of religion or a religious impulse in America. They present to us not only people who are much more beautiful than us, but also have kind of like the sheen of immortality. Celebrity exists somewhere between us and God, somewhere in what used to in the in the space that used to be preoccupied by angels. And so I think of them as kind of avatars of a different way of living, of a different kind of being. And so he's a he's obsessed with them not only because these magazines make their way into his office to populate the waiting room, but also because he's drawn to anything that has the the veneer of religion. Can you share a passage from a writer that influenced you or speaks to you as an author? I chose Malloy by Samuel Beckett. So I got up, adjusted my crutches, and went down to the road, where I found my bicycle. I didn't know I had one. In the same place, I must have left it. Which enables me to remark that, crippled though I was, I was no mean cyclist at that period. This is how I went about it. I fastened my crutches to the crossbar, one on either side. I propped the foot of my stiff leg, I forget which, now they're both stiff, on the projecting front axle, and I pedaled with the other. It was a chainless bicycle with a free wheel, if such a bicycle exists. Dear bicycle, I shall not call you bike. You were green, like so many of your generation. I don't know why. It is a pleasure to meet it again. To describe it at length would be a pleasure. It had a little red horn instead of the bell, fashionable in your days. To blow this horn was for me a real pleasure, almost a vice. I will go further and declare that if I were obliged to record in a role of honor those activities which in the course of my interminable existence have given me only a mild pain in the balls, the blowing of a rubber horn, toot, would figure among the first. And when I had to part from my bicycle, I took off the horn and kept it about me. I believe I have it still somewhere, and if I blow it no more, it is because it has gone dumb. Even motor cars have no horns nowadays, as I understand the thing, or rarely. When I see one through the lowered window of a stationary car, I often stop and blow it. This should all be rewritten in the pluperfect. What a rest to speak of bicycles and horns. Unfortunately, It is not of them I have to speak, but of her who brought me into the world through the hole in her arse, if my memory is correct. All right. So tell me why you chose that. Well, you know, no one had written like Beckett before, and no one really has written much like Beckett after. Um, It's it's an invitation. This whole the whole passage I've just read, and basically. The entirety of the trilogy, the three novels that he written, that he wrote, uh, that starts with Malloy, and uh, the second one is Malone Dies, and the third is The Unnameable. These three books sort of threw out the playbook. They did away with so much of what we think of when we think of a proper novel. But it also, on the local level, on the on the sentence by sentence level, of which I just gave you about a page 
a, a taste of a page or so. It's freewheeling. It's making up it as it, making it up as it goes along. It feels very improvised. It feels very very free to do what it is that uh, whatever it is that he wants. I'm thinking in particular of the very first sentence that I read. So I got up, adjusted my crutches, and went down the road where I found my bicycle. And in parentheses then, he says, I didn't know I had one. I think what's so astonishing about that is that it is almost speaking as speaking directly as the novelist. He's coming up with a, the need for a bicycle at the moment in time that he encounters it sort of as he's writing it. And he says, he's even willing to admit, I didn't know I had one. When he says, I didn't know I had one, I'm not even sure he's not speaking as Beckett himself, saying, I didn't know that this fellow even needed a bicycle until I just encountered the need on the page. How about something you wrote? It could be something that you found tricky or something that changed a lot or something that you feel you succeeded at. Well, I'll take a little passage from this book, uh, To Rise Again, at a Decent Hour. Um, it's two paragraphs of this very minor character named Kavanaugh. Um, and I'll just read it and then we can talk about it. He smelled good. I thought I detected hints of cardamom and white birch. Men like Kavanaugh in the financial institutions and law firms always come to my chair floral with designer scents and aftershaves. I pictured these emissions competing on the molecular level in a bloody, feral melee with their peers in every conference room and hallway cluster, every private office and chartered plane. One whiff of Kavanaugh, and I had no doubt that his pricey little O's strolled from the battlefield, undiluted and triumphant. He was reading his me machine when I sat down chairside. His fingers swiped and daubed at the touchscreen, coloring in all the details of a fine landscape of self. A glitch in the soul produced that delay between his breaking off from the machine and his return handshake. He tucked the thing away in his pants pocket, where it buzzed and trilled with approximations of nature. I turned on the overhead as Abby handed me the Explorer. Mrs. Convoy's worries were not exaggerated. His mandibular right second molar was grossly carious, and the sinus was discharging bucally. I bent the light away. Are you in any pain, I asked. All right, so tell me about this. Well, this kind of came about, I mean, I, I probably spent, I don't know how many days writing these two paragraphs. It, it, I, I didn't spend consecutive days doing so, but I worked them over and worked them over until I got them perfectly right. One of the difficulties, I think, in writing fiction is to try to understand how the contemporary world should play a, a role. And uh, having somebody look at an iPhone is an extremely undram undramatic and uncolorful thing to do, whether it be in a book or a movie or whatever. And so what I, was, what I ch challenged myself to do was to make it metaphorical, make, it, make the, the language that was describing it interesting, and to make it more than simply he checked his phone. Um, and I think that, you know, I, hopefully I, I succeeded here with the metaphorical language, with the descriptions of what he's doing when he's actually swiping the screen um, and using that kind of more f uh, figurative language to describe this 
very literal thing. I felt that was necessary in a book uh, about social media and about the way, the way we use technology. So where do you write? At my desk. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I run. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My wife. How have you dealt with rejection? I've worked harder. And what is your favorite word? Fidelity. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Joshua Ferris, author of the novel To Rise Again at a Decent Hour. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The First Draft theme music was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.